Studio Shift. 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 Our Heroes. Our Heroes. Want dat doen we elke dag een gesprek met ja, iemand die toch een held is voor een van de collega's bij In The Pocket. Iemand heel erg belangrijk in de sector. Goedemiddag, Boos Metz. Hey Bert. Collega bij In The Pocket, wat doe jij precies? Uh, mijn titel is strateeg, maar uh, ik ben ook wel bezig met design en uh, productmanagement. Ik laat uh, mij niet zo graag vangen in één hokje. Van alles. Ik probeer van alles wat te doen. <laughs> Oké, okay, is goed. Je hebt gesproken met uh, Dan Saffer. Wie is dat precies? Uh, ja, het is een heel interessante man. Hij heeft, uh, denk ik, over zijn carrière van 25 jaar zo alle hoeken van Silicon Valley gezien. Uh, ik heb hem ooit leren kennen toen ik nog studeerde. Hij had een boek geschreven over interaction design. En dat was wel de eerste keer dat ik erover hoorde, die term. Uh, en nu, ja... Uh, uh, zit ik zelf in het veld, dus ik vond het wel interessant om hem zo na 15 jaar nog eens terug te horen. Ja, en hem ja. te vragen over zijn boek en, uh, en zijn inzichten in de industrie. Ja, en in het eerste stuk, waar heb je het over met, uh, met Dan? Wel, uh, in het eerste stuk hebben we het over zijn carrière en wat hij heeft zien veranderen in de industrie. Hij is echt begonnen als webmaster, uh, deed ook alles van design tot uh, engineering enzovoort. Um, maar is nu product lead van een groot, uh, ja, groot appbedrijf in Silicon Valley. Dus ik heb hem eigenlijk meer gevraagd over uh, hoe hij de industrie heeft zien evolueren uh, en ook hoe dat hij de samenwerking tussen designers en product managers ziet. Um, voilà. Well, I'll be talking to Dan Saffer. He's a product design leader and has worked at Adaptive Path, Twitter. And currently he's a product design lead at Flipboard. He's also literally written the book on interaction design and other books on gestural interfaces and micro-interactions. Dan's been active in the field of digital product design for more than 25 years, and he's coined the term topless meeting for a meeting without laptops. So hi, Dan. Great to, that you were willing to do this interview. I've been following you ever since I encountered your name while studying product design, Carnegie Mellon. Seen a few talks of you, so it's great to finally meet you in person for this radio segment, Talking to Our Heroes. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've been around a while, as you said, so it's, yeah, it, it's fun to, to do these kinds of things and talk about design rather than uh -huh. doing design like I do all the time. <laughs> Great. Uh, so maybe let's start with your career. You have quite the interesting career already, if I might say, where you worked for a number of uh, both industry leading companies, small and large, both agency and in-house. So looking back, what are the most remarkable things that you've seen changing over those years, perhaps? Oh, man, everything has changed since I started working. Because I started at the dawn of the web back in 95, 96. Where I was, which is at New York at the time, it was an industry that we were making up at the time. There was very few books. There was very few conferences. It was very hard to get information. So you were always like scrambling to find information on like mailing lists and desperate to find people that were doing the same thing as you. And so that was really hard. Like we would have these like little meetups where there'd be like four or five of us in the back room of a bar. And you'd be like, oh, you do this thing? Oh, I do this thing too. How do you do this thing? What is, what's a wireframe? Do you ever do a prototype? Like, how do you mm -hmm. do this? Are you, what, are you, do you, do you do Visio? Do you, you know, it was all like tools and, and process and just how do you, how do you basically do the job you do? And now, 20 plus years later, there's a conference every week. There's tons of books. There's podcasts like this. There's YouTube videos. There's art. There's just a flood of information where you can learn. And so the, for me, that's like the biggest thing. And just the, the community of practitioners has grown from a thousand people scattered across the globe to 100, 200,000 people probably work in this industry sure. now. Like it just, yeah. a, it's just exploded. And so for me, those are the biggest thing profession wise. And then, of course, obviously technology wise, you, we started with working on desktop software and then have gone to the web and then to mobile and that now to, to VR and, and services. Like in the physical world, design is just spread far and wide. 
as design becomes better known and as technology just invades every part of our lives. So sure. the different kinds of things we work on is so different now. Mm -hmm. There's been an explosion in both technologies, devices, of course, but also roles, design roles in this industry. Uh, oh, and so yeah. the term interaction designer might have disappeared a bit, the pure interaction designer. Is it now a skill that's expected of just product designers, you think? Yeah, I think that the product design or user experience design is the umbrella term and interaction design is just one of the disciplines kind of inside that term. And depending on the, for me, depending on the product that you work on depends on how much of any discipline that you're working on. In some instances, if you're working on a very like content heavy site, you might be doing a lot more information architecture, mm -hmm. but if you're doing something, if you're doing like a game or something like that, that's like really heavy into interaction design. So it's all kind of a mix of things. And when you're doing physical products, it's this mix of interaction design and industrial design. So it's, they're sure. all under this umbrella term now of product design and or user experience design. Product design, I think, has a touch of business in, in it as well, it has a touch of business and business strategy. Um, yeah. It's where I think that that's gotten mixed in, where it's, you can't, you're not just designing in a vacuum, you have to design um, with the business in mind. At Mayfield, I had a great job because I was in charge of kind of product and design and for a time a little bit of marketing so it was great i was able to like shift hats depending on the kind of problem it was and i'm interested in the overlap between product management and design do you think it's advantageous for a designer to be involved in product management or vice versa oh yeah the two roles i think have a lot of overlap because you're trying to in a certain sense, design and product management are all about figuring out product market fit, like what what's going to work for this for these people. Now, product can come at it from a different angle and be like, well, let's look at the overall market window and see where there's holes. And there's a whole bunch of other things that product does that design doesn't. But in the end, it's all about figuring out what's best for customers. Let's figure out the prioritization of what we should be building and who we should be building it for. And to mm -hmm. me, that's, I mean, design and user research cares about that a lot. So it feels like the, the, the best partnerships that I've ever had have been being partners with product is um, mm -hmm. super important because then design has a say in in the roadmap. I think, and that's what's that's what's really important. That, that's what I always want to get my hands on. Is like, what are we building, mm -hmm. um, and how are we prioritizing them, and how are we rolling them out. I think that to me, that's a super important part of design as well and informs my work like okay if i know that we're building this thing first or i know i have a vision two years from now this is what i want the product to look like how do i break that into chunks and get those chunks on the roadmap those are mm -hmm. the things that that i care about as a designer and so working really closely with product is super important mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense and i agree I guess you've been at a few bigger companies that went from startup to scale up to corporate, even let's say uh, at Twitter, for example. And in my experience working with clients, the initial product vision that was so clear when they just launched or when they had their first year can sometimes be muddled or, or not as clear anymore when, when they've grown just due to the sheer scale. I'm curious to know how you align the user experience in a bigger company where often those separate features are managed by different teams of designers and engineers and product managers. Yeah. That's the big trick, right? Yeah. As, as stuff grows, it's easy to just bolt on lots of people's pet projects, right? Oh, we should be going here. We should be going there. And yeah, my team at Twitter, 
I was really focused on onboarding at Twitter. That was a big core of what I did. Mm-hmm. But we were part of a larger team that was about staying informed. So the kind of reading experience, notifications, onboarding topics, and the main timeline were all in my my group's wheelhouse. But there was a whole other group that was doing like conversations and discussion and composing tweets. And so how do you keep that aligned is a real trick. So one of the great things about Twitter is that it does have a fairly clear vision of what the kind of mission is and the mission of, hey, we're informing the public conversation. They're there to serve the the global public conversation and trying to keep that in mind. And one of the things about Twitter is, at least for me, you get a sense of what is Twitter, the product itself, and because of the nature of where it started and those kinds of things like suggest a couple different characteristics of things that make it make it feel like Twitter, like things that are like short and brief and social and those kinds of things like really feel Twittery to me. And so when things would violate that feeling, it was like, well, this doesn't feel like Twitter. This feels like something that Facebook would have or something that Reddit would have or something that Pinterest would have. You could feel, you you gain a product sense of like what something could feel like. It'd be tricky, right? (laughs) For sure. Conveying your vision to the whole company when decisions are being made left and right. How did that work at that company? It's very hard. And I was down in the, I was in the stack of designers there. Like, I wasn't in a management position. So sometimes it's, hey, you just have to, you present a vision over and over for things that that you think are important. Mm-hmm. And you do that a number of different ways. Your traditional like presentation deck, there's other things like uh, prototypes or we were in a, I was in a group called the Possible Futures team for a while, and it was a complete like Twitter strategy group. And our job was to think of like Twitter five years out. And so one of the things that we did to convey that mission was make movies. We made movies of what the experience was gonna be like using Twitter five years out. One of the items that you mentioned in your book, designing interactions, like was vision typing. And this is one tool that we also use a lot in uh, the strategy team, let's say. But I've noticed that it's a powerful way in getting company enthusiasm about a new concept. But it can also backfire when you're trying to build it real with user input, with alignment with the business. And so do you see a downside in making like a perfectly seeming concept to convince people before uh, making the decision to build it? There is, yes, it can be a, a boondoggle and a waste of time and those kinds of things. One of the things that we tried to do was say, okay, this is the vision, but here's the steps that we would take to get to that vision. And, and at each step we would do we would learn certain things and this vision is going to change when it hits users. If this is a pristine vision of a feature that, that is, that we don't know about and hasn't been user tested and all these other things. So there's a lot of caveats to it, but if you can say, Hey, this is the big, this is the big thought behind this. And what we're showing is, one possible way that thought could play out. So one example that we had was was audio tweets, which has since come to pass. Like it was like, hey, we could have audio tweets. There could be tweets like this. And so we had a vision of what that might be. Now the actual vision that was built is very different from the one that we showed, but it was more like, Hey, what would Twitter be like 
if you didn't have a screen, if you had this kind of, we were calling it the heads up experience where you weren't like heads down in a device because there are all kinds of situations where you may want to use Twitter or get Twitter, but you can't be staring at a screen like driving a car or, or a run or any of those other situations where you still might want to do the jobs that Twitter does staying informed or informing others or having conversations. So, so you have to keep saying, Hey, this is a pristine vision, but we need to build it in stages. And at each stage, we're going to learn something and change something because we just don't know everything that needs to be known. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but if you can sell them on that core idea, Hey, Twitter should have an audio component. That's, that's the win really. Een fijn eerste stuk van dat gesprek met Dan Cipher. Ja, het is heel cool om te horen hoe zijn ervaringen in een groot bedrijf als Twitter um, ja, hem geleerd heeft hoe hij een productvisie kan behouden. Uh, hij definieert het zoals een productgevoel. Hoe voelt Twitter aan? Uh, en als je dat kan uh, over heel het bedrijf duidelijk maken, dat is echt de sleutel om zo'n groot team aan, uh, aan een coherent product te laten werken. Ja, zometeen het tweede stuk van dat gesprek na Olivia Rodrigo. Studio Shift. Our heroes. For you, I guess you moved on really easily. You found a new girl and it only took a couple weeks. Remember when you said that you wanted to give me the world? Good for you, I guess that you've been working on yourself. I guess the therapist I found for you, she really helped. Now you can be a better man for your brand new girl. Getting everything you want You bought a new car and your career's really taking off It's like we never even happened, baby What the fuck is up with that? And good for you, it's like you never even met me Remember when you swore to God I was the only person who ever got you Well, screw that and screw you You will never have to hurt the way you know that I Good for you. We praten met een van de helden van iemand bij In de Pocket. Dat is vandaag Dan Seffer, waar jij mee hebt gesproken, Bo. Waar gaat het over in het tweede deel nu? Um, daar hebben we het een beetje over het designproces, hè, dat in de uh, loop der jaren wel heel wat geëvolueerd is. En ook zijn ervaring um, en het verschil vooral tussen agencywerk en in-house werk. Uh, en hij vergelijkt het het eerste met ja, het uh, ter wereld brengen van een baby, heel kort, uh, snel resultaat, versus het opvoeden van een kind, uh, lange termijn, visie en uh, niet zo snel resultaat. Uh, we hebben het ook over zijn nieuwe rol als designlead bij Flipboard. Toch uh, echt een grote app die eigenlijk sinds de introductie van de iPad uh, op de markt is. Ja. Uh, en waar hij ja, een heel nieuwe wind in dat team en in het product wilt uh, introduceren. Design thinking has led to 
almost a homogenous process in this digital product design world, I feel, uh, where design research takes up an important role. All for the better, of course, but I also see downsides to that and you need to balance it with other inputs, let's say, to make decisions. So I'm curious to know where do you stand on the value of engaging with users in the different steps of the process? My old colleague, Jesse James Garrett, always had a great line where he said that users, user research and the findings from user research should be an input to the designer, not be the designer or not like override mm -hmm. the designer. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But I feel about it that users, users know a slice of, of your product and they, but, and they know their needs better than you do. Although a lot of times they can't articulate them. So I think it is, it is important to do user research and listen to them throughout all the stages of the product, but they don't know. They don't know your the product as well as you do. They don't know the market as well as you do. They don't know there's a, they don't know what's possible as as well as you do. So there's a lot there's a lot there that the designer has to filter through. And in terms of like design process, I feel like I've never been like a design process purist. There's never like an exact step that you have to go through. Oh, we have to do user research up front, or we have mm -hmm. to do, hey, let's build this and roll it out to a small group of people and see if it's see if it works. Versus having to do these kind of you know, research sessions. Although, as Erica Hall has in her book, like just enough research, like you can do a little bit of research and get enough insights to move forward with. It doesn't obviously it doesn't have to be a ten week. Mm -hmm. user research extravaganza it can be very targeted and you can sure. learn stuff from an agency context most of the time that's true because the budget is limited or the company believes that they have a lot of research done already they want to reuse right. this and so on and we always try to sell it as uh, we're trying to reduce risk before uh, launching with something and we won't know for certain until you launch it, of course, but it is an input that we can use for um, yeah decision making. Yeah, totally. We have the we have the same constraints with working where I work now. It's a small company. We don't have we don't have the, the Twitter. We had the luxury we had a whole user research team and a user testing lab and all all these like all these great tools at our disposal. You see the value of having a dedicated user researcher shared amongst the teams? Yeah, for sure. Just because setting up user research and doing the insights and being the, having an expert on users is a super valuable thing to have, I think. Plus people like that are working very across different product verticals or different product surface areas are super helpful because they get to see a lot and hear a lot and they're like, oh, this is happening over here and this is happening over here. Maybe those two things are connected as well as just, yeah, like just the time it takes to do good user research and the time it takes to do good insights and Right now, we just don't have time to do like some of the larger studies that we might want to do or do user testing with a larger group of people just because we just don't have a dedicated resource to do that. Like things like mm -hmm. recruiting and all that kind of stuff, those things just take time. Sure. And it's just tricky when you don't have a dedicated resource to do it. So I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's, a huge win for any team to have that. And going back to our product manager thing, it's also something that, that product managers should advocate for because it helps them get product market fit. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. I'm interested in the difference between 
working as a designer in an agency versus in a product company. And so you've been at both, right, during your career. Uh, mm -hmm. What did you find interesting about working at a product company like Twitter or Flipboard that you couldn't find in an agency, perhaps? They are like two different professions, practically. They are, they are very different. Christina Wadke once said, working at an agency is like being a doctor in the delivery room. Like in-house is like being in nursery school or something like that, or raising a baby. And, it, and it's definitely that kind of feeling where the great part about agencies is you're working a lot on the cutting edge of a lot of things. You're seeing a lot across industries, like your mm -hmm. whole job is to be working across industries. You're, you get a lot of breath. Whereas with in-house, you're like, you're focused on one industry. You're very deep in, in one particular space and you have to dive deep and know everything that you can know about that space from many different angles. So it, and so it's all about depth in house. And so the, mm -hmm. they're just very different in the terms of like how teams are structured, how you, how you think about things like, and what gets made, what doesn't get made. Like when I worked at agencies, like I would say maybe 80%, maybe even 90% of the stuff that I designed probably never got made mm. or you'd see one little tiny piece of it somewhere and wow. And in-house there's plenty of stuff I've designed that hasn't gotten made either, but, but the hit rate is higher because it's their core business. It's mm. okay. This is, we have to ship to sure. to deliver on product goals or to grow our user base or whatever it is. It's a core part of their business. Do you, do you find it more impactful to be at a product company or how would you define it generally? Sometimes at product companies, it's hard to get your, it's hard to get your voice heard. It's hard and it's easier and everyone who works in an agency knows this. It's easier for someone to come in from the outside and be the champion of ideas that people inside the company may have been championing before because it may get heard broader or it may get to the ears of the right people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I think that's a power that outside agencies have is that they can amplify messages or highlight them in a way that that is hard for everyone else. Sometimes it's hard to see that. And mm -hmm. you come in with fresh eyes, you're able to see things clearer from an agency point of view. But the flip side of it is that sometimes you get this very shallow uh, or very light view of the company organization just because you just don't have typical engagements aren't that long. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's Oh, you'll propose something that is completely un unworkable for reasons that you have no that you have no idea that won't work. Or oh, that's not how the the technology works for this thing. You can't do that. Right now, I'm really enjoying focusing on products and like building like at that level. Like I really one of the things that's really fun is to become like an expert in a certain area. And I really, I really like that. Although I do miss some of the pace and, and excitement of an agency. Like I do miss mm -hmm. some of that. Could we maybe talk about your current company? So you recently yeah. moved to Flipboard. I read about your decision on moving there. I was really insightful, I thought. And you talked about the potential of the team but also the potential of Flipboard being a different kind of consumption platform, a curated one, but that's a different, maybe a different vision than it had before where it was more a news medium, news aggregator. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious about how you um, envision on steering this ship 
that has existed for maybe 10 years plus in a different direction? And how do you go about doing that? And how do you construct a team around that and so on? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating, interesting challenge. Yeah, so Flipboard launched in like 2010 was like the iPad app of the year. It's just a beautiful news reader, news aggregator. And that's how it got fixed in, in people's minds over the years. And five years ago, we started to add this layer of social to it where you could not only just save articles to read later, you could create basically your own mini magazines around niche topics. You could make these public collections of articles. What we didn't do was really surface those and make those discoverable easily by other people or highlight the people that were making them the curators of these magazines. Mm -hmm. So that's our challenge now is how do we expose this social layer of people making these really interesting, very niche magazines that are great? How do we get those in front of everyone else? And so that's been like my team's job is to figure out like how do people discover the social layer of Flipboard? How do they realize that Flipboard is not just a, it's not a newsreader, it's the first and only social magazine. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of beast than what you think it is. And so some of that is how do we first expose this is happening, how do we, different ways of discovering that through education, through just promoting these magazines that live on the site right now. And then second, how do we highlight the people making them? How do we show off, oh, this person makes great collections of things. How do we highlight those? And then last is like, how do we give you the tools to make these magazines and make them really great and make it easy to share them and, and flip them and collaborate on them. So mm -hmm. those are kind of the, the steps that, that we're taking right now. And so some of it is like, how do we start to, without like a complete refresh because we have millions of users right now that we just can't be like buy like it's a whole new thing so it, it's a mix of retaining and hopefully with the people who are who are our current users feeling like they got an upgrade that hey not only is this an amazing place to get your news or get stuff about your different interests but now it's like, oh i can follow all these like specialty magazines that are being made for my like really niche interest. Oh, I'm, I'm really interested in photography gear, or I'm really interested in vegetarian food or whatever it is. There's dozens of magazines you can follow now. Yeah. So and I'm so, hearing some themes from that, probably your time mm -hmm. at Twitter as well. Content discovery, uh, social media, of course, Twitter is all about the timeline and conversations, but I guess right. your time at the onboarding team did learn you a few things about how to expose the right content to the right people. It's a lot of the same problem that I was having at Twitter. Yeah. Like, how do you get people to the content that they're going to like? And at mm -hmm. Twitter, that's mostly connecting them to mostly for most of Twitter's life it's connecting people to other accounts because you follow accounts. Now you can follow topics. And that was the big thing when I was there. And now it's like connecting people to topics. Mm -hmm. For most of Flipboard's life, it was like, how do we connect people to topics? And now we're trying to do the opposite, where it's well, how do we connect people to other people mm -hmm. or to other or to their collection of articles, the, the mm -hmm. magazines that they make. So it, it's a yeah. similar challenge through the looking glass it's like it's an inverted challenge but but yeah but very similar mm -hmm. idea
Zit er zo wel wat gelijkenissen tussen eigenlijk zijn, zijn tijd bij Twitter en, en nu Flipboard? Ja, inderdaad. Dat is interessant. Wat hij geleerd heeft bij Twitter, het verbinden van mensen met topics op termijn, kan hij nu ook gebruiken bij Flipboard. En vooral ja, de uitdaging waar AI en machine learning bij komt kijken om die topics te verbinden met personen, is enorm belangrijk. Ja, zometeen het derde stuk van dat gesprek met Dan Saffer. Studio Shift. Our Heroes. Goedemiddag, het is iets over één uur. We zitten in delen van het gesprek met Dan Seffer, de held deze middag op Studio Shift. Bo, jouw gesprek met Dan Seffer, waarover gaat het in deel drie? Uh, daar vraag ik hem over zijn idee over nieuwe technologieën en dan vooral uh, potentieel daarvan. Hij is zelf wel een heel big believer in uh, augmented reality, AR. Uh, maar ik denk dat we echt nog in de early days zitten. Are you thinking often about new technologies, new interaction paradigms? enabled by AR, for example, or internet-connected products or voice interfaces. And where do you see this going? Do you feel there's as much potential in those as in the mobile revolution? Yeah, yeah what are your I thoughts mean, about that? Uh, yeah, for sure. I definitely, for a very long time in my career, I that was my thing was like especially like the agencies i work for were like hey let's here's this new technology what do we do with this thing when i worked at jawbone it was similar like the engineers would be like we can do this can you put this in a watch and like how would this be useful for 
how would this be useful for users? Or, hey, here's a, here's a home robot. What would people like to do with this? So I spent a lot of my career doing those kinds of things. And yeah, and so it is something that I keep, keep, in, keep an ear to the ground and listen for. And yeah, I think that we're at with AI and VR and AR somewhere around like the mid 1990s in terms of technologies. Oh, we can <laughs> see what this is going to be. But in 20 years, it's going to be something completely different and completely blown out. I think AR is going to be really huge. I think that there's so much there. I think VR will be great in certain situations, but I think it's just a much more of a, it, it feels like much more of a, a surrender, uh, you know, or, or mm-hmm. much more of a commitment versus kind of AR. And oh. I can just, there's just, uh, I, I think AR is very untapped kind of potential at this point. Yeah. And then a- AI and machine learning, I think we're literally at the kind of start of that. Like the things that that's going to spin out, we can't even know yet because yeah. And I think we're just going to start seeing a lot of that. Whoa. It's going to open up these new futures that, and new ways of designing things, new ways of thinking about things that we don't even, we don't even know now. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a a lot of different, like uh, lots of different, even design jobs around that. There's going to be like the job of explaining like what it's doing and like how it's doing, like those kinds of things. And then the design of the like, ethical constraints around some of this stuff and there'll be a lot of like equity and fairness and diversity and all the DEI stuff like focusing on that with AI is going to be huge Uh, I just yeah and then there's like the personality part because and we see this with stuff like Alexa and stuff now how do you design the the personality of these things to interact with them the interface is is speech and what it's saying back to you and how human is it versus how mechanical is it. And that makes me think of a next topic that I'd like to touch. Your book on microinteractions. I, I loved a lot of those examples. The details are not the details per se. They, they are the defining experience. Yeah, that was that's the old uh, Dieter Rams thing. He's like, the details aren't the details. Those are the design. Those are right. the things. I felt like writing that book was definitely in 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 the same vein as industrial designers have known that forever, and so it's just bringing that kind of thoughtfulness into digital realm. Could you maybe talk about some of the micro interactions that you yourself were involved in designing in your career? There was one that we made for a company that was doing video. It was doing like video broadcasting. And when you, when you turned off your camera or had the camera turn off, this little uh, window shade pulls down. And I really love that kind of, Oh, it's like a, it's a, it's like a physical kind of feeling like, Oh, I'm just, I'm closing the, I'm closing the blinds. You can't see me now. I really Mm -hmm. loved yeah. That one. The one that I still love and use every day is the Kindle time to read one is that I love, oh, you've got 13 minutes left in this chapter, or mm-hmm. you've got two hours left in this book, which I find is super genius because it's something that a physical book can't tell you and it's customized to you. It, oh, it uh, is. Yeah, you're, it knows your reading speed. So it mm-hmm. says, okay, you read at this pace. And so we think it's going to take you this long to, yeah. to finish. So that I think is great. The app that I love that I think has some of the best micro interactions around is Waze. Some people don't like Waze, but I, I think it is, I think it is genius. I think they're extremely good at predicting the questions that you're going to have and bringing that data forward and showing it to you. Mm-hmm. So like the one that I like is, 
hey, you're going to be sitting in traffic for 12 minutes. Like, just, hey, okay, great. I know how long I have. I used to, like, have to scroll ahead and be like, "Uh, oh, it looks like there's something two kilometers down the road that's an accident, and so I'm probably going to be sitting here for a couple minutes. But now they just bring it, like, hey, here it is. It's 12 minutes, and you're going to be sitting here. (laughs) They understand driving so well and the experience of driving that, yeah, that it, that they're able to predict what you're thinking in a particular moment and give you those tools for that. So I think that it's just, I don't know. I find them to be a real exemplar yeah. of good micro interactions. The, the rise of cross-platform technologies and everything being web-based, you see really this drive in a lot of applications. Do you feel there's a decline? by that in micro interactions and just like native apps who go a bit further in animations and, and touch uh, controls? There is a lot of standardization and commodification in the kind of web space. I think that's the nature of it. I don't see native apps going away. And so I see it, you know, there's always going to be interesting things happening there. And there's still innovation on the web, but there's still plenty of places to be innovative and, and interesting. And micro interactions doesn't necessarily mean flashy animations either. It means providing small bits of information or or doing something in a very pleasing way. And that, that doesn't necessarily rely on flash. It, it relies on understanding the activity and the context and all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not necessarily connected to the technology, right? You're building it in. Makes sense. It's easier to do some slick stuff with mobile operating systems and stuff like that. But Mm. I, I wouldn't count the web out yet. It's well fun to hear you tell about the micro interactions. Ja, dat is een interessant boek dat hij geschreven heeft. Uh, hij heeft zo wat de term gecoind, uh, micro-interactions. Uh, voorbeelden zijn de Facebook-like uh, of de manier waarop Waze bijna kan voorspellen waar je naartoe wilt, uh, door je patroon te herkennen. Ja. Um, en ja, hij heeft het over de Dieter Rams quote van uh, de details zijn niet de details, maar zijn het design. Het gaat over de details. Ja, zometeen nog een vierde en laatste stuk van, van jouw gesprek met Dan. Na een nummer dat hij zelf heeft gekozen. Dan zijn voor Got Nothing van Spoon. Studio Shift. Our Heroes.
Alleen van Dan Cypher over wat hij allemaal weet, vertelt, maar ook welke muziek hij leuk vindt. Dat is dan ook fijn natuurlijk. Got Nothing van Spoon. En dan het laatste stuk van jouw gesprek met Dan Cypher. Waar gaat dat over? Uh, well, ik leg hem enkele quotes voor die hij zelf geschreven heeft in een blogpost, 100 Things About Design. Um, enkele diepe quotes, zoals het verschil tussen een vaas en een manier om bloemen te presenteren. So maybe to close off, I have a few uh, statements from your blog post, 100 Things I Know About Design. I thought there's some of those are really like interesting thought experiments for me just to think about uh, what those meant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd like to do this as like, a quick round. So I selected five that I personally find interesting. I, I was going to read them and then maybe ask a question about them and then we'll spend about 30 seconds to a minute each. All right. Quick fire. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, rapid ready? fire. Yeah, lightning round. Sure. Let's sure. go. Yeah. So, first one. Design isn't just about problem solving. It's about creating a more humane future. I love this statement personally, especially because it's not about the design itself, but about the outcomes it facilitates for people. Uh, and I'm curious, how much has this led your career choices in the past? Oh, a lot. I think that, to me... I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to build the future and that's what I thought design was all about. And problem solving is not like every profession does problem solving. That's not part of the design. Um, the design doesn't own product, uh, problem solving, but we are one of the few kind of professions that like makes things and can envision things and give form to ideas. And uh, I always thought that, that was like the coolest thing where people could come with a half formed idea and design gives it form. And so, how about this? This is a possible future. And then the kind of humane part of it was like, what's the kind of future that I want to live in? Do I want to live in that kind or this kind? All right, so design is both how it looks and how it works, because how it looks indicates how it works. This speaks to the intimate relation between interaction and visual design. Two disciplines are often split in the digital product design world. How do you feel about that divide and, and how do you handle it in your work? There's this running joke of UX, UI. What is it? Like, what do we call it? What do we... And there's always this people love the steve jobs quote where it's like design isn't like how it looks it's how it works and it's no actually it's both it's like design has an aesthetic function to it it's it's our job to make things aesthetically pleasing even if it's aesthetically pleasing and, and it's completely invisible it has to feel pleasing like voice interfaces like it has to feel pleasing to work with or, or, or a service that you're you can't really see but you can feel like the flow like oh is this is this so many steps when it could be three steps those kinds of things and so for me like the connection between the two is like very tight i mean everything about it from 
affordances. This is a button. You push the button. To, oh, what's going to happen when I push this button? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, I feel that they are so interconnected that to try to split them into this is how it works. This is how it feels, how it looks. It's just that they're all the same. They're all designed to me. Yeah. And I, I would recommend to our listeners to, to follow you on Twitter for um, great examples of UX, UI, meme material. <laughs> yeah, anytime I, I see two two random people together or something like that 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 gets added to the pile of ux ui yeah it must be so confusing as someone starting in the field trying to uh, understand what the <laughs> difference is <laughs> it it has become yeah this running joke yeah tom coates was telling me that yeah when he started following me on twitter he he would actually spend time like trying to figure out well which one is ux and which one is ui that's the joke is that it so yeah. doesn't matter <laughs> that's great third one the shape of the glass affects the way you drink that's deep did you make that up or was that a reference from somewhere no i made i made that one up it makes me think of that famous we shape our tools and therefore our tools shape us it is it is very similar to that and we used to talk about there's a big difference between if you tell someone to make a vase or to tell someone to make something to hold flowers. You one is extremely constrained and the other is wide open. And, and it will make a difference. I guess mine is like thinking like like the next step beyond that, like how how that flower is presented affects how you feel about it, affects how you think about it. And the same is with content too, or books, digital books, or like in my current job, like the reading experience. Like if you read this article, like, and it's beautifully set and has a, you know great images and feels like a magazine, that changes your reading experience and changes how you feel about the article. And maybe a, a bit of a follow-up to that. I think it's a great way to think about the impact of design. Uh, on the way people behave using your product. And so maybe oh, what yeah. was your experience um, working at Twitter and the impact of shaping this massive social medium on the behavior of, of its users? Yeah, it was really interesting. The kinds of stuff you could do, talk about an interesting kind of container problem. Like in one tweet, you could have a crazy cat doing something silly. And the next tweet could be, from a political leader declaring like a hurricane disaster or something like so the design of the container had to be fairly neutral to contain all of these to contain the entire spectrum of humanity there there have been times where it's been like twitter should have more of a a presence or an or a voice in and of itself and that's it's really hard to do when you're serving a public conversation and the public conversation can be about anything. So that's a, it's a really interesting thing. And then one of the things, you know, that we talked about when we were thinking about audio Twitter was like, okay, there's a billion ish people, maybe even 2 billion people on the planet who can't read. How do we get, how do we get Twitter to them? How do we get, how do we get them involved in the public conversation? Number four, if you design and build for every edge case, you'll never ship. If you never ship, you'll never find every edge case. This alludes to the concept, I think, shipping an MVP and learning along the way, right? The, the balance between those two. And I feel the concept of minimum viable product is really misunderstood by most people using it in our industry. And so everyone is trying to minimize risk by testing and validating and so on. But some things can only be learned by shipping. Oh so yeah. I mean, where do you strike the balance between those two? You definitely don't want to ship things that you. For me, is would I ever ship anything that I feel is completely broken or is somehow going to harm someone? There are always going to be edge cases, and unfortunately, some of them you're just not going to find. You could look for them 
and do a million tests and try to find them. But uh, I don't know. It just seems like there's got to be a line somewhere that, and for me, it's like about like harm and dignity and trying to make sure that, trying to make sure that it is accomplishing the goals that it, that our, the users need to accomplish. Now, I I obviously don't want, yeah, again, I, I hate launching things that I feel like are, are incomplete or broken, but sometimes, obviously you don't want to launch anything that's like fully broken and just doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but you want to have these like, you know, these nice experiences that are, that maybe not as full featured as you'd like, but, and that also are not, I don't know, making people do terrible things or enabling people to do terrible things. This was obviously a problem at Twitter where you had to be, I worked on this, this project called don't at me when I was at Twitter and don't at me was about being able to stop people from replying to tweets. And that was a, that's a huge change. Like every tweet used to be that you could, anyone could reply to it. At any, and, and I was like, wow, is this going to break Twitter? Is this, how could this be used for, for, for ill? Hey, if, if a public figure like starts putting out all this incendiary stuff, and they mm -hmm. stop people from being able to reply to it. How's that going to work? But some things it's also, you can't, it's hard to figure out like what's going to happen once I launch this. You just don't know when you're working at that kind of scale. You sure. can try yeah. to, you can try to, you can try to figure out as many things as you can, but when you have half a billion people banging on it, it and 1% of them are trying to break it or trying to stretch it as far as it possibly can go. That's a <laughs> yeah. lot of people. That's, that's a hundred million people. That's a lot of people. So. Yeah. That's been challenging operating at that scale. I guess. It is. It was very challenging, exciting, but yeah, but definitely challenging. Yeah. That maybe leads me to my final statement about yeah, user input, let's say, even when launching products, you say user input is great, but design judgment is better. And so in our experience, we see user research or user input as a great source of inspiration. It's about empathy, and but ultimately also about risk reduction, let's say. Where do you see the value of user input during design, but also during launching of a product? I It, it is a valuable input throughout the entire process. For me, it's, it's valuable. Before you start designing, is this worth investing our time in? Is this, is anyone going to find this valuable? Somewhere in the middle, it's about understanding like, hey, is this, are you understanding the, the intent that we're trying to give here? And then at the end, is it pleasing to use this thing? Is it, uh, is it usable? Is, uh, have we forgotten like anything or could it be simpler? So for me, like all those things are important to get user input on. Now, again, like I was saying earlier, like you take all those things and your judgment is what you're being paid to have. Uh, your taste, your judgment and looking at those things and being like, these people are right because I've seen this before or hey, our data, our internal data has been telling us that this is what people are doing and we should lean into that. And there's a lot of things that the design judgment is, is, is really, yeah, where you earn your money. And so mm -hmm. that's <laughs> yeah. thing. People are like, I want this and it's like, yes. And, and you may say like, we, we've tried that and it doesn't work. It's the old K. Hey, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a, a faster horse rather than a car. Now you could argue now, maybe it would have been better if we could have invented faster horses, but, but, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, yeah, it, it's an interesting conundrum.
how much influence does your research have on you? And for me, it is a valuable piece of input, but a, a, a piece of input that I then have to filter through mm-hmm. what I know about design, what I know about the company, what I know about our, the company goals, the company structure, the market, all those kinds of things. So, sure. which users don't have to think about that. Yeah, makes sense. All right, I think we're almost at the end. Maybe just as a final question, a colleague of mine also read your books and he wanted to know if you get to pick the covers of the O'Reilly books. Do you get to pick the animals? <laughs> you don't get to pick them. Sometimes they'll offer you a choice. The micro-connections ones are hummingbirds. They are the they are these the smallest birds. And so that was the idea behind that. And so all the user interface books are birds. All the design books are birds. And what's the one uh, on gestural interfaces? uh, I forget. I forget what what kind that one. I think it's a bird that uses its beak like tools and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I really wanted, I really wanted, there's a, there's, uh, a kind of monkey that makes all kinds of rude gestures. And I was hoping that would be the one for that. But I guess monkeys are some other kind of, some other kind of books. I think that's the end. Love to talk yeah, to you awesome. in the future. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks for taking the time. Fijn gesprek van collega Bolsmet met Dan Sever, die hero van vandaag. 